book filled with beginnings. But what we know about the book of Genesis is that it ends as well. And so the way that the author ends the book is by burying the past while looking forward in faith. And so this morning, we look at the life of Jacob, and last week, we, uh, the life of Jacob ended in the narrative. We see that um, Israel, formerly known as Jacob, is now uh, the person called Israel, governed by God, renamed by God, made a new creation, and yet he was formerly known as a heel catcher. He was formerly known as a cheap shot artist. He was formerly known as a schemer and a liar and, and all of these things. And yet, by God's grace, his life has been changed. He, in chapter 49, gathered and commanded his sons. He gathered his sons all together. He says, I got some words for you. And then he commands his sons' attentions so that he can speak into their lives words that no doubt resonated throughout the rest of their lives. He uttered words of wisdom. He uttered words of prophecy. And then he utters words of blessing over each one of them. He leaves them with a legacy. But then he commands them. He he leaves them with a, hey, by the way, uh, one last to-do list. Some of you dads are good about giving your children to-do lists. He says, I've got one last thing Uh, that I'm commanding you to do. I want you to bury me with my fathers, not here in Egypt, but in the land that God promised us. And then he rested his feet. He kicked up his barca lounger, his lazy boy. He put his feet up, he took his last breath, and he was gathered to his people. And so he ended just like he began. And some of you might say, well, where did he begin? Well, his walk of faith began in Genesis in chapter 32. And I'm going to turn there real quick because as he had left the land, I don't know if you remember, but Jacob left the land of Israel or the land of Canaan to go and get a bride. But he left primarily because his brother wanted to kill him. He was afraid. And yet he was going to get a bride from the people where his father came from, Abraham. And as he's coming back into the land, he's he knows he's supposed to come back, but he's also still fearful that, you know, I left and I wonder after all these years if my brother still wants to kill me. And so with that fear in mind, he comes back into the land having been humbled and the Lord speaks to him in chapter 32, verse 9 of Genesis and says, or excuse me, Jacob says to the Lord, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, The Lord who said to me, return to your country. I'm doing what you said, Lord. He says, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For when I crossed over this Jordan, in other words, when I left the land, I crossed over with only my staff his walking stick, if you will. And yet now I've become two companies. I'm coming back, and he came back with wives and many children. So he says, I know that because of your mercy, I left the land with nothing, and now I've come back into the land, still alive, and having multiplied as a large family. But what's interesting is that as he walks off the scene, 
in chapter 49, it says that he kicks up his feet, he, he uh, breathes his last breath, and then he's gathered to his people, meaning that he's gathered to those who have passed on before him. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 21, it says of Jacob, it says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped the Lord, leaning on the top of his staff. And I say all that to say that his life began leaning on a staff. That's all he had, something that was used for walking or sojourning. And then as a sojourner, leaning on his staff, he breathes his last and he dies. He lived throughout his time here on earth as a pilgrim. And many of us, uh, we, we haven't been pilgrims. Maybe you've had pilgrimages to different places, but most of us like to be established somewhere. We, we like to go somewhere where we have roots. Um, I remember when I got done with college, I, I had, and I, I went crazy, I moved all the way to Rolla. And I was so far from home. But I always fancied myself someone that was an adventurer until I was away from my roots. I was away from people I knew. I wanted to go where, somewhere where everybody knew my name, you might say. But then when I was out there and I was away from my support system, and, and, I, and many of you might be different than I was, but when I got done with all that, I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to live in the city. I didn't want to be in a place I was unfamiliar with. I wanted to be around people I knew. And so I moved back home. And in the same way, here it is, Jacob comes back to his people and he's established in the land God promised to him, and there he starts a family. So in chapter 49, in verse 33, it says, When he finished commanding his sons, he drew feet up into his bed, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. And it says there in verse 1 of chapter 50, Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. So Joseph openly mourns his father's loss. Now, if you don't know anything about uh, Egyptians, they they don't mourn outwardly. But Joseph, having lost so many years with his father, finally gets back in contact with them, and then his time was very short. And so no doubt he was grieving the years lost, but he was also very happy. There can be mournful tears, but he's just going to miss his dad. And so he mourns the loss of his father. And then verse 2 says he buried his father, and he doesn't just bury him like anybody would. He buries him like a rich man would be buried. He buries him like an Egyptian would bury his father. It's very elaborate. It's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. And Egyptians would embalm their family members when they would die, and they would do it, of course, in their custom. And it would take up to 40 days because it would be surgical. They would, uh, through the nose, they would remove the brain. Uh, They would cut open the side and remove all the internal organs except for the heart, which is interesting because they believed that that was the center of who a person was, their heart, which brings new meaning to me. They leave the heart in, and Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceed the issues of life. Well, the Egyptians at least did that. They kept the heart. (laughs) Sorry, that's kind of gross. But then, 
I thought it was funny. Um, but then uh, what I want to point out is the Egyptian burial, the way that they would do it, it was all focused on preserving the physical body for the afterlife. And that's what the world does, by the way. We want to preserve our bodies because if there's something after this, I want to look good for it. And in their beliefs, they would bury their pharaohs and their, their leaders. They would embalm them. They'd build a pyramid that was their tomb, a really good-looking place to store dead people, right? And that's what our bodies are. If we're not regenerated, if we haven't been born again, you're just preserving a really good-looking tomb. It's going to pass on. But at the same token, what's interesting is that they prepare the body uh, for death and, and focus on preserving the body, which is something they would do to honor their leaders. What's interesting is that Jesus himself, when he died, they preserved his body and they put him in a rich man's tomb, just like Jacob was here. He becomes a type of Jesus Christ. And then we go on to verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, it says, Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. That's a pretty long mourning period. It seems to me in our custom, it's just a few days later and they're in the ground. And many times we wonder why we struggle still after we bury somebody. It's because we haven't taken that long to mourn. You can't spend 70 years with somebody or know them for that long and then just a few days later be like, okay, move on. It doesn't happen that way. There's this dealing with the loss of someone that has become like a limb on your body. There's all of these uh, phantom pains, if you will. But here it says in verse 4, when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying these things. My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, Please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So here we have Joseph requesting permission from his boss to take time off to mourn his father and to fulfill his last wishes. Interestingly enough, if you turn to John in chapter 19, I could not read this passage without thinking of Joseph, not the Joseph in Genesis, but the Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19, verse 38. It says there that after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret disciple of Jesus, he was a prominent leader in the Jewish community, and so he was a uh, secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. And he asked who? He asked Pontius Pilate, an ungodly man, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. 
and also Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, he also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pounds of those spices. Interestingly enough, they're doing their own Jewish version of embalming. They're preparing the body to be buried. So if somebody would come and visit a couple days later, and they'd open the tomb, it wouldn't stink, although I'm sure there might be a little bit of aroma. It would smell like these precious uh, spices and oils. And then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury their dead. And so just like an Egyptian would bury them by embalming them, they would also take strips of cloth and wrap it around the body after soaking the body in something called, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this, natrone. And natrone would, it would draw all of the moisture out of the body so that the body wouldn't decay as quickly. And so in like manner, they would wrap it with strips of cloth. Interestingly enough, Jesus, when he was born, what did they wrap him in? Swaddling cloths. And at his death, he was also wrapped in cloth. And so as he's wrapped in this cloth, uh, Jacob, being wrapped in this cloth and embalming, would become a type of Jesus Christ, who at his death would also have his body prepared. And so, verse 41, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So Jacob has all these parallels to the life of Jesus Christ, except, of course, Jacob was a sinful man. And yet when his body was fully given to the Lord, later his body would become a type of the one who would come and not only be a savior, but be the savior of the whole world. And so in verse 7, it says, Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh. The, the elders of Pharaoh's house and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So he requests permission to go and mourn his father and to bury him. And Pharaoh not only gives him the right to take the time off, but he also says, let me send with you a posse of people to make this a great event. So as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. So all of Jacob's family. Actually, the only ones that stayed behind were their children, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. So there was a great procession, and it says there that there was a great mourning. It says there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Uh, One way that we honor people or we see that people are honored is not only by the legacy they leave behind, but the group of people they leave behind that they had an impact on. Here we see that Jacob, in his death, had a far greater reach in his life than just the people that he was related to. He actually had an impact because of his children and the blessing that they were to the known world this great group of people. Notice in this procession wasn't just, of course, the Pharaoh didn't go, it says, but he sent all of his cabinet members. This is a great honor in in a very great nation. 
And then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. It says, He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. And so they were obedient to their father. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and they buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And if you remember from the past chapter, it mentioned all the patriarchs had been uh, buried there, including uh, Leah, who was Jacob's first wife. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and a whole who went up with him to bury his father. So they obeyed their father even after he had passed on they honored their father. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, we could very easily say, well, big deal. They fulfilled his wishes until you see how far they had to walk. Since they carried their father, they carried him over 400 miles. And if you see the, the line there, they crossed from Goshen across not just any place, but they crossed the Sinai Peninsula, which is not known for comfortable conditions. And then they cross over into the land of Israel today, and they buried him there in the field of Ephron the Hittite. So not a small journey, and no doubt there were many stories that they shared along the way. So they've buried Jacob, and then they're also going to have to now bury the past. Why do I say this? Because now that Jacob is passed on, Joseph has already forgiven his brothers, but they're going to start to question whether or not Joseph really wanted to forgive them, or if he just did it for the sake of his father. So in verse 15, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us, and he may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. And if you remember... They've already confessed, yes, we sold you into slavery, Joseph. Uh, We meant to kill you, but we only sold you into slavery, and we're really sorry. Why were they sorry? Well, perhaps because now he's got power. Perhaps it's now because he could have withheld food from them. Perhaps it's because he fears his father and wants to see him. So they're questioning, did he really forgive us? And the answer we find is in the rest of this passage. It says, so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, you know, before dad died, he commanded us saying, you shall say this to Joseph. These words of flattery, perhaps. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. (laughs) Dad wanted us to confess to you that we sinned against you. Uh, 
Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now why would Joseph weep when they would say this? Probably because he had truly forgiven them and they're doubting this forgiveness. Have you ever forgiven someone and you could tell that they doubt that you really mean it? I think sometimes we do this to the Lord. When Jesus forgives a person, it says that when we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart, uh, we're saved. Uh, His blood covers our sin. It wipes it completely away. And I read in the Psalms this week that when he forgives our sin, he casts it as far from us as the east is from the west which is interesting because no matter how far east you go, you can never reach west. And no matter how far west you go, you can never reach east. You just keep going west or you keep going east. That's how far it is. No matter how much you travel, that's a pretty far distance. Infinity. And, and some kids might say, infinity plus one. You know, uh, how much have I been forgiven? How complete is God's forgiven, forgiveness for our sin? It, it, 100%. And then some. And then some. And then some for eternity. That's complete forgiveness. And we doubt God's forgiveness. Why? Because when people we know forgive us, it always seems like they probably didn't. They probably remember it, and there's probably a little bitterness still there. But God's not capable of lying. When he says you are forgiven, you are completely forgiven. And so Joseph weeps because his brothers question his forgiveness. But similarly, it hurts Jesus when we, as Christians, who have been cleansed by his blood, who have been forgiven, we doubt God's forgiveness. We doubt his love. And so Romans chapter 8 touches on this for just a little bit. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but instead delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen, his elect? It's God who makes just. It's him who justifies us. Who is he who condemns us? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also right now makes intercession for you and I? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, not even Jacob's death, could erase Joseph's forgiveness, 
Not even our death, not even a pastor's death or someone that's been an instrument of God's forgiveness in your life. When they die, God's forgiveness is still there for you. He says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things that will come, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall be able to separate you or us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Forgiveness sets us free from our past. Forgiveness makes us free from the chains and the bondage that sin brings. Today, we are celebrating independence from those who were once enslaving us or making us their, they were our master and we had to do their bidding. We celebrate independence from England in 1776, right? But here's the the bad news. That freedom that that military advance created for us can be taken. Did you know that? Our freedom as a nation can be taken from us. Now, many times it's taken from us because we give it away, by the way. We, we're no longer enslaved to a nation. Now we're enslaved to our own lusts and fleshly desires. We become slaves to what we serve. But here's the good news. Say the worst happens and we can't become enslaved to another nation. If we're free in Christ and we become enslaved to another nation, we are free. <laughs> And the freedom that we have because what Christ has done can never, ever be taken from us because it was given to us by God. Nothing can separate us from the freedom that God has purchased and given to us as a gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Freedom in Christ is available to the person that is persecuted and stoned to death. Freedom in Christ cannot be taken by a government. It can't be taken by a person. It can't be taken because of a broken law, because you're obeying Christ instead of a government. Freedom in Christ is always ours to keep, no matter if someone threatens our life or any other thing. And I love that, because our hope is not in our freedom in this world. Our hope is in Christ, who has offered everything for us. And so all that to say, Joseph here spends some time and he reassures his brothers, I forgave you and I meant it. And if you've ever doubted whether or not God's forgiveness was enough to forgive you of something that you still carry from your past, when he told you you were forgiven, he meant it, but he's not above reminding you your forgiveness is still legit. It's still valid. When I forgave you back then, I meant it for today too. And I love that because it's powerful, right? Joseph reassures his brothers. It says his brothers also went and they fell down before Joseph's face and they said, behold, we are your servants. Because when you doubt whether or not somebody still loves you, you try to earn their favor. But you can't earn God's favor by even bowing down and saying, I'll do anything you want. I'll be your slave. You can't earn God's forgiveness. And so Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I've already forgiven you. I've set you free. 
I've said your debt is no longer valid here. Verse 20, but as for you, and he reminds them of something he already told them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. I already acknowledged that. You meant to harm me. But God, in his sovereignty, he meant it for good. In order to bring it about, as it is this day's, to save many people alive. You sold me into slavery. I was sent to Egypt. I, I was owned by people. I was imprisoned wrongfully. And guess what? Because of that, I got connected with the Pharaoh. God gave me his dream and helped me interpret it. And we were able to provide grain for the entire known world because of the wisdom of God poured through me. So just as Joseph... One man was enslaved wrongfully and charged with crimes he didn't commit. God meant it to save many people alive. Jesus was the same. So Joseph reassures his brothers, remember what I said before, God was involved in all of it. You meant evil, but God worked it for good to save many people. And I love this because in Acts chapter 3, Peter mentions this in his preaching on the day of Pentecost, or maybe it's after that. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and you denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Let's let him go. Do you want to exchange him for a murderer? And the people of Israel said, no, we would rather you kill Jesus. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and set free, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. And they had just healed a man. They said, in the name of Jesus, rise up, take your bed and walk. And so through this unrighteous need, deed done by man, life has been afforded to all mankind through the death of an innocent man. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we see this verse that is so often quoted. But it says there in Romans that God works together with the wickedness of man. He says, with all things. I'm going to go there so I don't misquote it. Give you the Mike Mingy version. It's not a, it's not a copyrighted publishing. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. says that we know, and this is something we need to know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? I always need to ask that question. What's God's will for my life? Verse 29, whom God foreknew, he also chose to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's will for your life. Christian, God's will for your life is that you would be conformed into his image. And so we see this in the life 
of Joseph as he forgives. Jesus prayed this famously in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, I think. I might be misquoting where it is. But he said in the Lord's Prayer, he said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned and have debts against us. And as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, it recognizes that our sins have been forgiven by him. And so chapter 50, verse 22, we've buried Jacob. He was buried. Uh, Joseph is helping the, the brothers bury the past, setting them free, setting them free from the debt that they owed him. And then now we see the burying of Joseph. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. That's his son. And so he saw his great-great-grandchildren. The children of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, his other son, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you, and he will bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He says, I'm dying, but God's going to bring you back out of this land, and he's going to take you to the land that he promised our ancestors. And as a last statement of faith, he said, I want you to take me with you. I'm going to die. Take me with you. And it's not like weekend at Bernie's. You know, like it's not, you know, he, he says, I, I'm going to be embalmed. I'm going to be put in a box. But I want you to take me with you to where my father has gone. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. A coffin. A coffin. So Joseph finished his days in Egypt, but he lived to see his great-great-grandchildren. And yes, it seems as though they either sat on his, his knee or he bounced him on his knee. Uh, he got to see the joy of, of being a grandparent. Joseph reaffirms his faith in God's promise by his final words. And what's interesting about that is in Hebrews, back there in the same passage where we looked at Jacob's faith, it says, by faith, verse 22, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. And then he gave instructions concerning his bones. He says, this is not over yet. This is not where you're going to remain. Now, why would he say that? What would give him the inkling that they weren't supposed to just stay in Egypt? Well, God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac that he was going to give them this land, but who says that Egypt wouldn't become a part of that promise? That's where he called them to be, right? Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Because there's this interesting passage, and if I'm going to be fully honest, it's a kind of a creepy passage, where Abraham makes an offering to the Lord, and there he desires to make a covenant with God. But what's interesting is in, in his desire to make a covenant with God, he falls asleep after keeping people away from the sacrifice all day, and the Lord shows up to him in a vision, and he promises to do things for Abraham. Abraham, 
doesn't have anything to offer. He's exhausted. He falls asleep, and the Lord speaks to him in this vision. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. says, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Then he goes on to say, And they will serve this people, and this people will afflict them for 400 years. That's that's an interesting and kind of a creepy blessing. We're going to serve them, and we'll be afflicted by them for 400 years. But verse 14 says, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge them. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Is this starting to sound familiar? Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. I I absolutely believe that Abraham passed this promise from God down to his descendants so that when it came to pass, they would know that this was the the voice of the Lord. So he passed it down from God, and he says, I I don't know what this means, but we're not going to stay in Egypt forever. And when we leave this place, I want you to take me with you. So verse 26 says, Joseph was embalmed, and notice that he was put in a coffin, not a cave. Jacob was buried in a cave in the land. Joseph was buried in Egypt, but not in a permanent place that's attached to that land. He was buried in a coffin. He was buried in something that was temporary, something that could be carried. What's interesting is the word in the Hebrew here for coffin is actually aron, A-R-O-N, pronounced aron, which actually means ark. And if you remember some of the stories, like in Genesis where we have the flood, the people of Noah were preserved past the time of judgment, and they were preserved in an ark. And later God's presence would be carried in an ark. Even Moses, who was delivered, he was a Hebrew child born during the time that they were supposed to kill all the Hebrew sons. His mom, by faith, built an ark, put him in the Nile River, and then he was drawn up out of the water, which is what Moses means. The name Moses means brought out of the water, and he was preserved in a little little reed-built ark. And so we see this in the same way, that though they will go through a time of trial, they will go through a time of servitude. My clicker's not working. They will come out of it. And so in my next slide, faith looks beyond the grave and it looks forward. Joseph's coffin was a reminder of faith that God would one day take them to the place that he promised Abraham. Every time the Israelites would see Joseph not buried but in a box, they'd be reminded, wait a minute, he said we wouldn't stay here. By the way, coffin means chest or ark. Similarly, Jesus' empty tomb to the Christian should be a similar reminder. One of the beauties of going to a empty tomb, even if it's not the right empty tomb in Israel, is I go and I stand there and I look at it and I go, oh, that's right. This place isn't our home, because if it was, Jesus would have stayed here. But he didn't stay here. 
He left the tomb. He rose from the dead. He proceeded from this life. He wasn't all about preserving this body. He was all about leaving this life and going to the place that God had prepared for him. And he's prepared for you and I as we follow him by faith. So think about it. The world sees a coffin and thinks of death, right? We, we don't go to funerals and go, oh, that's a really awesome coffin. We go, I don't look forward to the time where I have to put my loved ones there. I don't look forward to the time that I will be in one of those. Uh, but the Israelites, the people set apart for God's use, set apart by God, they would see a coffin and it would remind them of the life that is to come. And for us, the world sees a tomb and they think of death. But Christians, we should see the empty tomb and reminded that our living Savior, he's alive today, by the way, it should be a reminder of the life that God has promised us and he never promised us that it would be a sunshine and rainbows here. He didn't. He promised us that he is going forward in a place that we could not go. And the disciples were like, what's he mean by that? I'm going somewhere that you can't go so that I can bring you there with me one time, one day. I go from you to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. So in this meantime, what are we called to do? We're called to lean on the staff and be sojourners in this world until one day, He calls us home, he comes back for us, and he takes us to the ultimate place that he's promised to us. So until we fully obtain what he's promised, just like Jacob, just like Joseph, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, we become sojourners in this land. Until we obtain what we've been promised, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, his faithfulness to fulfill all that he's promised by partaking in communion. This communion meal that we take is his body and it's his blood. And all of those who have a relationship with Jesus are invited to come. Because as we take this meal, we drink the cup and we eat the bread, we proclaim his death until he comes back again for us to take us through, to be our ark, to take us into the life that he's promised. And so this morning, as the band comes up, and as they play a song for us, I want you to spend time with the Lord and ask him, what are the ways that I'm supposed to be trusting in what you've promised will be, and what are the ways I need to repent of trusting what is now? Our trust is not in the life that we have now, it's in the one that he has promised is to come. And in the meantime, we're supposed to be inviting people to go with us. But as we celebrate communion, I want you to think about what it costs to forgive him, for him to forgive us. And remember that his forgiveness is fully assured. It's not something you've earned. If you get a bad day and you start screwing up and you, you didn't read your Bible as much and you're, you, you miss church or whatever it is you think that makes him happy about you, Remember that you're his because of what he's done, not because of what you've done. And so that's what communion's all about, reminding us his sacrifice is what makes us whole. His sacrifice is what guarantees that we are his and we will one day again be reunited with him fully. So worship with us.